Welcome to Rethinking the News by the Christian Science Monitor. I'm Clay Collins, one of its editors. Today we're offering a story that's very much of the times. Our Ibrahim Onefeko takes a look at the changing face of hunger in the United States and at a nimble organization in the Washington, D.C. area that has reinvented itself to better serve some of those who've had to seek out food assistance for the first time in their lives. Here's Ibrahim's story. I'm just seasoning the halibut, waiting for the pan to heat up. I'm getting another pan um, to saute the mixed veggie. Um, so I got oil in both pans. So now the pan is hot. I just take the fish and I gently put it in and don't touch it. The veggies, I just put it in the This is Odessa Davis, a teacher in Montgomery County, Maryland, a single mother of an 11-year-old boy. She usually splits her year between teaching at a local public school and working as a summer camp director. This was before the pandemic hit, shutting the summer camp down and leaving Odessa suddenly without income, hampering her ability to provide for her family. When school stopped, um, you know, that's where my trouble started because I was basically dipping in my savings because usually during the summer I am a camp director. So the school system is only 10 month job. So my other job will pick up where the school left off at and the camps were closed and uh, I applied for unemployment, but I couldn't get it because I was, tech, you know, still working for MCPS. So, um, so I struggled a lot during the summer and in part of the beginning of the new school year. While Odessa didn't qualify for unemployment, she was able to receive the Pandemic Electronic Benefit Transfer, PEBT. The PEBT card, which is designed to replace meals lost due to the coronavirus school closures, provided Odessa with $5.70 in benefit for each school day for her son. Unable to fully meet the needs of her family, Odessa began receiving food assistance from Capital Area Food Bank last summer. Uh, My PEBT card. Um, I didn't have any money on it. So that was my food stamp card for the pandemic. And I didn't have any more money on it. And I was like, uh, they said I won't get it again till it was like that December or something like that. And so I was like, man, let me just get the help. You know, the first time it's kind of like you want to hide yourself type thing. You don't want, you know, people to see. But because I was like in my car, you know, it was like, it was, it was okay. But like, once you get past that first one, Mm -hmm. you know, that first time doing it. Many people like Odessa have found themselves newly facing food insecurity during the pandemic. She was one of hundreds of thousands that sought food assistance last year from Capital Area Food Bank. 
the largest food relief organization in the Washington, D.C. area. As millions of Americans lost their jobs during the pandemic, the number of people experiencing food insecurity skyrocketed. In 2019, some 35 million people experienced food insecurity, but that number has more than doubled in 2020, according to an estimate by Northwestern University. Historically, people often associate food insecurity with homelessness, but that's a misperception. More often, those who are experiencing hunger are people like Odessa people who are experiencing homelessness, that community is the most visible. And that is only about 5% of the community that, that the food bank is, is serving. That's Hilary Salmon, the communication director of Capital Area Food Bank. You know, the people who are experiencing food insecurity in our area are very often working. Um, and some things have changed, obviously, with the pandemic. But, um, you know, these are often people who are working two and three jobs, sometimes um, very, you know, very long hours to try and put food on the table to keep the, the family afloat. We live in a really expensive region. And so if you've got even a series of low-income jobs, it's going to be really difficult to make ends meet between rent and utilities and food. And we know that when budgets are stretched food is, is almost always the first thing to go um, or to be cut back. For Odessa, asking for and getting the help she needed wasn't easy. There is a lot of stigma when it comes to asking for food assistance. When you think of asking for help for food, you're, you're seeing, you know, it's like you're not, like, when you ask for help for food, it's like you're struggling, right? But at that time of the pandemic, it was like, you know, I have one job, but I'm still struggling and kind of feel uh, ashamed. But I didn't take it as, I had to look at it as a different way and say, just take the help, you know, put the pride to the side and just take, take the help. For Capital Area Food Bank, Helping its clients overcome this stigma is an essential part of food relief work. Here is Hillary again. We have someone who um, works on what we call our hunger lifeline, encouraging them that everybody needs help sometimes. And, you know, it's okay to ask for help because there's, there's nothing more important than making sure that, you know, you and your family are getting your basic needs met. And then, of course, our nonprofit partners are all deeply committed to making sure that everybody who comes through their doors is treated with respect, dignity, um, and support, and, and that the barriers to getting the food that people need are as low as possible. As food insecure households have risen over the last year, food relief organizations have had to be creative in finding new ways to serve their communities. DC Central Kitchen, an organization that combats hunger and poverty through job training and job creation, turned its cafe into an emergency feeding site. So when the pandemic hit, uh, our, our cafe became an emergency feeding site. The schools where we serve healthy meals in the cafeterias became emergency feeding locations. And in many cases, we had to set up tents outside of those schools in order to serve kids safely. 
That's Alexander Moore, Chief Development Officer at DC Central Kitchen. Our community meals program had to go from serving family-style meals that would be served at each partner agency to doing individually packaged meals so that every single client could have a safe and secure pre-packaged meal under COVID. We had to figure that out in 48 hours after doing meals the same way for 30 years. Um, we had to start doing mobile feeding where we would send out a, a delivery van and DC Central Kitchen staff to areas where we knew there were transit gaps, where there might be neighborhood tensions, where there might be seniors or kids who would have trouble getting to a, a school or a grocery store or another feeding site. And we would set up shop for a couple hours, handing out meals and groceries at those locations. Capital Area Food Bank, which believes in letting people come to its food bank and pick the foods they like, had to shift its approach as well. They now pack food in boxes and deliver them to people in need. We believe in a client choice model uh, where clients can pick and choose what they like to cook, you know, uh, maybe speak with a nutritionist, learn a little bit about the, you know, the nutrition value of certain types of foods, how to prepare it uh, so their kids will eat it, um, things like that. That's the president and CEO of Capital Area Food Bank, Radha Muthaya. So that's been our typical model. But obviously in COVID and with social distancing and limited interaction, we haven't been able to do that. So we've been assembling boxes of uh, emergency food that are nutritionally balanced. To do this, they've partnered with some nonprofit organizations to help with the building and distribution of these food boxes. They've also created jobs for unemployed members of their community. We, you know, we've completed um, the distribution and, and building of 400,000 of these emergency COVID boxes over the course of the last 12 uh, months. And, um, and you know, we wouldn't be able to do that just with uh, volunteers or our staff. And so we have actually um, been in a partnership where a foundation has hired those individuals who have become unemployed and and we have benefited from them as they have come to help us pack many of these uh, COVID uh, emergency boxes. Goodwill Industries International also pitched in. They realized that they weren't using their trucks. People weren't coming to the stores, obviously, um, to, to acquire um, household goods. And so they volunteered their uh, trucks and drivers to be able to help us with our deliveries. Uh, there are five kind of racks high. There's a forklift going there in front of us, and um, this is where we've got all of our our food. Uh, and the uh, central place we distribute all of our, you know, um, all of our food out of. Although we've got now uh, several other houses that we've started using because we're distributing so much food at the moment. So in here they start, I think, with building the boxes and then eventually start putting things in. But right now. We're for Odessa and her son, these food boxes have been a stress reliever. You got two boxes, one that was produce and one was dry goods. Um, there was turnips, there was carrots. Uh, I know there was... Uh, I don't know what it was, but I know the dry stuff, it was, you know, it, it was like the basic stuff, you know, peanut butter has like 
like cans of soup, tuna, um, rice, soup. That's all I could think of right now. I was less, less stressed and I got to be creative. So I took it as a challenge, try to figure out what I can make with this. So kind of felt like the TV show Chopped. Because <laughs> it was like you open the box and it's like, you don't know what's in the box. So I just looked and I figured out what they had. And I thought, oh, I can make something real quick with this. So, yeah. While these boxes can help families, they are not perfect. People have different dietary needs and restrictions, and delivering perishable items before they go bad can be a challenge. But most families make do with what they get. The dry goods was fine, you know. Um, if there was something I didn't eat, like, because I don't like mac and cheese, so I just gave it to, you know, another friend of mine but the produce was was good but not good at the same time because when you open the box it looks looks fresh but as I went to take the stuff out to rinse it off um certain parts on the bottom was molded Mm. yeah so I had I told um Anna and Hannah, the people that work at Capital Food Bank, just to let them know, like, that's the only part that just needs to be improved because it's bad enough the stigma of getting it. In many ways, prepackaging food for recipients goes back to the old model of food aid distribution. Just take what is given to you. Dr. Caitlin Caspi, the director of the Food Security Initiative at the University of Connecticut, says choice is an important part of the conversation. There was really a large movement in the decade prior to allow people visiting pantries and, and um, other charitable food assistance programs to choose what they're taking home. Um, what we found in our research is that the most important thing to someone who is visiting a food pantry is that they can choose what they take home. Dr. Caspi says the model of giving people the choice helps them meet their individual needs. If you can sort of imagine, um, like any of us, um, there's family preferences, there's kind of cultural preferences, there's allergies and special diets that people are on. Mm-hmm. And um, so giving people the choice uh, in what to take um, in in our research certainly has not shown that people are less likely to take healthy foods when you give them choices. And it results in a more dignified experience, certainly for for clients who are relying on these these programs. And so we're hoping that we haven't seen a true um, backpedal in offering choice. Even as food banks adopted new strategies, they still struggled to respond to the high demand for food assistance. Their food donations dwindled, causing them to rely much more heavily on financial donations. In a typical year uh, prior to COVID, about two-thirds of our food is donated to us by area retailers. And then, you know, the remainder is either from the U.S. government or one food that we purchase through financial contributions from uh, from community members and donors. That's Radha Muthaya again, the president and CEO of Capital Area Food Bank. That 
switched completely and we almost ceased to get any donations from our retail partners as they were selling everything that was you know available on their shelves and in their stores um so we had to pivot and purchase um a lot more food than we ever have uh so last year we purchased over 750 truckloads of food to be able to meet the need while financial support and donations continue to keep food banks running it does raise the question should food security rely on charity Dr. Caspi points out that we will continue to be forced to rely on a charitable food system until we change how we approach the issue. And it has to exist because there isn't an adequate safety net for people who need access to food and the safety net is comprised of um a bunch of federal programs and state-run programs. um and local programs um and the biggest of which is snap or supplemental nutrition assistance program and the purpose of this program snap is really it's the government program that is um really leading the way in terms of alleviating food insecurity and to a large extent it works it does it is effective for large um segments of people experiencing food insecurity it will mitigate food insecurity the bigger question is What do we do to so that it's not just about increasing the safety net? And Alex Moore, the chief development officer at DC Central Kitchen, says we shouldn't think about food security as being only about food. It's also about politics. Hunger is not a food problem. Hunger is only even barely an economic problem. But hunger is a political problem and it's a political choice. Some of the biggest drivers of food insecurity in America are the fact that wages haven't kept up with the cost of living, right? Uh that it is hard to move up the economic ladder, especially for folks who face systemic barriers to opportunity, whether those are language barriers or their incarceration records um or their histories of homelessness. And if we want to address some of these issues, then society should look at ways to increase opportunities within communities. and allow that to be a pathway out of food insecurity here is dr caspi again if you look even further upstream it's about if we're going to pass a policy should the policy be increasing the safety net or should the policy be increasing opportunities for economic stability and prosperity and many of us can agree that we need to look further upstream and it's not just about increasing this safety net comprised of both government and private organizations it's about sort of um it it's about increasing opportunity for people to have enough resources for their family that they're not mm-hmm. food insecure and policies like um minimum wage policies policies that are uh, kind of anti broader anti poverty programs and policies or even uh, anti racist policies all of that um promotes sort of it it provides this platform for equity that means that further down the line you might not have as high reliance on snap or on on the charitable food assistance program according to alex their organization takes the approach that eradicating hunger is everybody's responsibility and until things change at the systems level dc central kitchen will continue to provide much needed support 
and nourishment to their recipients, not just filling their bellies, but paving a way for their futures too. We're you know, happy to do our part from a food distribution perspective, but our magic is in job training and job creation and taking on these systemic failures by piloting innovative solutions. Uh, it's not that we alone will train every returning citizen in Washington, D.C., but if we can help demonstrate in our nation's capital that somebody who has experienced incarceration can become a thriving manager and a leader and somebody who's instrumental and essential in responding to our city's greatest you know, hunger and economic crisis in, in generations, that should get people thinking differently about what it means to hire returning citizens, right? Um, and so all of this work at the charitable and nonprofit level, it needs to be informing larger political conversations. In the midst of her struggle, Odessa's belief in living by example for her son fills her with the strength to persevere. My beliefs and um, having a son, because like I taught him is don't give up. Even though if you don't want to do it, it's okay to like yell, scream, mad, you know, but still do it. But don't, don't never quit. Mm -hmm. So he's watching me. So I got to stick with my guns to what I told him. So. That's true. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This story was reported, produced, and narrated by me, Ibrahim Anafiko. Edited by Jingnong Pong, Samantha Line and Puffers, and Clay Collins. Sound design by Tim Malone. Copyright The Christian Science Monitor 2021.